Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Breathe the fire, walk the air, drink the earth, and warm your hands at the water. A petitioner's greeting to Limpo. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are visiting our fourth plane on our tour of the Outer Plains. Today we are visiting Limbo, the plane of chaos. Now for this, we do not have like the steel drums of Cabana chat. It's not that Limbo. No, Um. (laughs) we don't need to know how low can you go. Actually, you know what? Some of these times you might, you just might. (laughs) Just maybe. So Limbo in itself, this one's going to be a tricky episode because everything is nebulous. We can almost sum up the entire podcast in just Nebulous. All right. Good night, everybody. Happy gaming. <laughs> yeah, it's James likes to say chaos woohoo. Chaos woohoo is the description of Limbo. I mean, the full name is the ever changing chaos of Limbo. And it is a plane made of pure chaos comprised of a jumble of unstable pockets of matter and energy. For once, I actually liked some of the stuff that they put into the 5e DMG for Limbo. Really? I mean, it's a little bit longer. It is three paragraphs this time. Woohoo. Yeah, I know. We've tripled our normal quotient of paragraphs for a plane. So this is absolutely all we're getting. We are definitely not getting a limbo manual because they have given us a bounty. A bounty. But there's one line describing the way things work in limbo that I just really loved. And I'm going to go ahead and read it verbatim. Stone melts into water that freezes into metal, then turns into a diamond that burns up into smoke that becomes snow, and on and on in an endless, unpredictable process of change. That's absolutely, I mean, yeah, that is limbo. If you want to travel through a Rick and Morty adventure, this is kind of it. Except limbo, a Rick and Morty adventure is going to be far more thought out and constructed and linear than anything in limbo could ever possibly be. Yeah, I would almost argue that a Rick and Morty episode is a little more pandemonium than Limbo. It's that littlest bit more organized and... I could totally see that. Yeah, no, that is that is a fair... Because Rick, let's face it, Rick has evil leanings. So pandemonium with that evil shift on the chaos kind of fits Rick and Morty a little bit more. That is a fair argument, and you will not have to twist my arm too terribly hard on that. Rick ultimately is kind of a giant asshole. (laughs) Yes. Yes, he is. So this is another thing that we can actually pull in from 4th edition. 4th edition with their world axis, Limbo is the basis for 4th edition's Elemental Chaos. The Elemental Chaos is primarily Limbo. Yes. And this is the one time where 4th edition, and I'm sure it was completely by accident, Limbo fits thematically with fourth edition as much as we've talked about they tried to change and do things different and 4e they were trying to bring something new to the table and they kind of messed up the meal it's like if you're cooking for the first time and you pour too much salt in the soup or you you scorch the bottom of the pan you know it just kind of didn't taste right 4e with limbo it was always this ever-shifting plane of existence there were gods there weren't gods people wanted to be there people didn't want to be there you get to third edition again all the gods decided to leave because it's too chaotic. Fourth edition, Limbo just ups and disappears, becomes the elemental chaos. Fifth edition, pop. Hey, look, Limbo's back. That is perfect. Why the hell not? It's Limbo. <laughs> yeah, so the way that I understand 
the elemental chaos from fourth edition is that it's primarily limbo, you know, this chaotic swirl of elements, because that's exactly how limbo is structured. It's all these pockets of the different primal elements with pockets of material plane stuff kind of floating around willy nilly within it. Right. And so that was the basis for the elemental chaos. And then the various elemental planes were just pockets of the elements that happened to be stable just stable pockets within Limbo. And then the Abyss was at the bottom. So Limbo ended up transitioning into the Abyss as the taint of evil happened to kind of mingle in. And it just became more evil as you dropped through the floor. I don't want to think about mingling in the taint of anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. You You threw it out there. I'm just just saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's just say it's summer in the South. Mm. <laughs> which is gonna leave it at that oh my <laughs> so yeah describing limbo in itself you're rarely on any firm ground there is no terra firma by and large so again you're kind of floating in the ether kind of like you would be in the astral plane or in the plane of air honestly the plane of air again a lot more organized but that whole you're just surrounded by by the elements. This isn't going to be a stroll in the park by any concept at all. And I'm glad that you bring up the plane of air because like the plane of air, Limbo has subjective gravity. So you always have the pull of gravity at the same rate as if you were on the material plane, but you get to choose which way is down. So just like with the plane of air, you can use this to move around. Which is a lot better than I mean, some of the older editions, I don't know if you want to talk about the optional rule yet, but they actually list in 5th edition, which was the power of the mind. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, because this was a very important thing in older editions, and they have made a change that I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either, but we'll get to that in a minute. But the primary way that you used to get around Limbo, for lack of a better term, is you would find an area where a pocket of air and a pocket of earth were kind of close together. And then you would basically make yourself a little earth moat from the stuff of the plane of earth. And then you would float it into a pocket of air around it. So you would control to make sure you have this bubble of air around your little earth moat. And then you change your subjective gravity to have your earth moat fall through space. And you just ride your earth moat. And you hope it doesn't change while you're sitting on it. No, because... That's the whole thing about control within Limbo is while you're concentrating on it, if you have sufficient mental faculties to pull this off, as long as you're concentrated, it stays however you want it. Yes. Okay, that's correct. So it becomes stable because you're concentrating on it. Okay. So as James mentioned, there is a variant rule within the 5th edition DMG for Limbo. It is in the vein of what the older editions allowed, but with a little bit more convoluted mechanics to it. So for starters, if you want to move an object, just have an object move wherever you want it to, you have to make a DCX intelligence check. The X changes depending on the size of the object. So it starts off as a DC 5 for a tiny object, 10 for small, 15 for medium, going on up until you hit 25 for a huge or bigger object. And you get to move it five feet plus one foot per point above the DC that you get it. So if you're trying to move a tiny object and you get a 21 on your intelligence check, 
you get to move it 21 feet as an action. Right. And that is a way of doing things. Again, depending on how nebulous you want to make Limbo, that is fine. Going back to the older versions, you could float, but you had to create what was called a sphere of influence. And this was actually a wisdom check versus a intelligence check, which, I mean, personally, I think fits Limbo better because, again, yes. as we've talked about, Will is that inner control, kind of that awareness of your surroundings. That felt always better. And so they gave you what they call the sphere of influence, and it created a bubble around you. And depending on how high your will score was, was the size of your bubble. Yes. And I agree with you. I like having it be wisdom instead of intelligence because wisdom is very instinctual. You're just instinctually controlling what's around you. You're controlling your space. Whereas intelligence, you're not going to be able to use logic on Limbo. No, you're not going to be able to not. use logic to control the chaos. Nothing here is supposed to make sense. Yes, it needs to be instinctual. It needs to be an impulse. You can't think your way through chaos. I would even say not even that it's instinctual because you can train and will something like the concept of meditation. But again, at that point, it does become that inner strength, much like meditation would be. So you are affecting your immediate surroundings and yourself by quite literally the force of your will. And again, you can be as intelligent as you want and try to understand your surroundings, perhaps, but it's limbo. Your understanding is going to count for squat. Yes, because anything is possible. Right. So there are two other effects that you can get off of the variant rule. The next one is you can alter any non-living object that you can see. And the DCs have the same progression as moving an object. They're just five higher so it's a dc 10 for tiny 15 for small and on up to 25 for large and bigger so it's not specified in fifth edition but in second edition you can only make basic natural kind of elemental stuff one of the things that they explicitly say is you can make a meadow but you can't make a building you can't make something that is constructed you can only make a natural thing. a natural shift something like shape water shape earth Things like that. You're not going to be able to pull off metallurgy. You're not forging a sword. Again, you're just kind of shaping the elements as they were. Yes. And the third one is you can stabilize an area around you for 24 hours. So you make an intelligence check. For a DC-5, you get a 10-foot diameter sphere of stabilized area around you. And the diameter of the sphere increases by 10 feet for each additional 5 over the DC. And again, these feel very much like a force of will thing than an ability to understand your surroundings to me. But yes. And I think the reason why they used intelligence is because all of these used to be intelligence checks in second edition because primarily it was the mages, your arcane casters that had to make these sorts of checks primarily because the chaos of limbo negatively affected their spells. Right. And we will get to that in a moment. Now, there was one extremely brutal um, effect, and that was just a native effect of Limbo that was actually in the original, not the original D&D, but AD&D. And this was just kind of the chaos and pandemonium, or not pandemonium, but the chaos around you, that unless you were able to form one of these, what they call the sphere of influence around you with a will save, or in this case, an intelligence save, every turn you didn't have this bubble around you, you rolled a D10, and then you took... However many D10, D6 damage against you per turn. So if you rolled a 1D10, you'd do 1D6 damage. 
if you rolled a 10 yeah. on the d10, <laughs> yeah, you rolled 10d6. And if you're only like level four or five and somehow in, in limbo, good luck. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Second edition was far more deadly than oh, yeah. later editions. Second edition killed your characters and laughed at you. It killed your characters for something to do. Yeah, it really did. And in third edition, this sphere of influence that James is talking about, yes, it was based off of your wisdom score, but you had to have at least a wisdom score of 20 to stabilize an area, which means that it would stay what you wanted it to without you concentrating on it. You could consciously focus on an area and make it stay put. But if you had to do something like, say, go to sleep, if you didn't have at least a wisdom of 20, as soon as you fell asleep, poof, it goes back to being chaos. And then you die. (laughs) Yeah. So all of this said, your trips into Limbo, by and large, were not extended trips. They were brief jaunts at best. Now, again, a DM can always give you a magic item to stabilize or to kind of give you that extra bubble you need or whatever you want to do. But these jaunts into Limbo were not supposed to be extended adventures for any given time, really, unless you had a specific thing to get to, you were probably accidentally teleported or tricked or trapped in here. Now, there is an optional rule from the third edition Manual of the Planes that I wanted to talk about because the third edition Manual of the Planes gave guidance for creating your own cosmologies, which I think is a really cool idea. It's a tool that's missing to a certain extent in the fifth edition books, just talking about how to create your own cosmologies, what sort of tools you have to tinker with in order to make something a little more cohesive. And the optional rule for Limbo was Limbo, the edge of reality. So what this becomes is it becomes a little bit more like that elemental chaos that you get in fourth edition, where this is basically what exists at the edge of the astral sea, where reality ends and transitions into non-reality or into the far realms. It's this barrier between where the planes break down and the stuff of the planes goes and mingles out there and then it can spontaneously create new planes through self-genesis. Or if someone has a sufficiently strong will, they can go out there and create their own plane or demi-plane from the stuff of creation that's out in this chaotic mass out on the edge of creation. And this makes an amazing adventure setting. This is basically what you would get if you kind of wanted to run like a Lovecraftian type setting. It would definitely be this edge of limbo, border of anything relatable, edge of madness. I'm sure there'd be lots of outsiders. These kind of blobular tentacle type monsters and shapes would fit perfectly in the setting. So yeah, the second concept of Limbo, the side rule of just kind of making it the edge of reality or the edge of anything relatable or substantial is beautiful. Last week we talked about SpongeBob and they kind of deal with this sometimes. Old Looney Tunes did this a lot. Kind of that negative blank space and then whatever they kind of talked about or mentioned just kind of popped up. A lot of the episodes with the Dodo were like this, which happens to be one of my favorite Looney Tunes characters of all time. But this gives the character something tangible they can literally stick their feet on, but still keeps things shifty enough that the DM can do a lot of magic with. And another just little bit in that whole Limbo is the Edge of Reality, it's just this little footer box on one of the pages in the Manual of the Planes, but it 
suggests that you could also replace the astral plane with limbo and just have all of the other planes floating around in limbo as these little pockets in the chaos. I like that because I mean, really, how would you know the difference? That is an inspired little footnote. I know, right? And it's just like one sentence in the bottom of this page. Limbo, astral plane, same difference. You're good. All right. (laughs) So let's get into a few more of the features of Limbo. In third edition, it was strongly chaos aligned. Imagine that. So all non-chaotic creatures took a minus two penalty on all of their mental ability checks. So all of their intelligence, wisdom, and charisma checks. Ew. (laughs) It's the same thing that happens for chaotic characters and mechanists, for evil characters and Elysium, and for good characters and Hades. Yeah, no, I totally get it. But again, as I tend to play a character that tends to use those stats more than others, that's (laughs) I also tend to play a fairly chaotic character. So not so bad. (laughs) Just touching back a little bit on our subjective gravity. We talked about how gravity still exists and will still pull you at the speed of gravity up to 300 feet per round, but unattended objects. So objects that have no consciousness just floats. So if you let go of your sword, you keep falling. Your sword stays put. Oops. (laughs) Yep. And so now you have to, reverse gravity so you can go back and get it (laughs) that would make a disarm maneuver absolutely brutal it would yeah and then the other major feature of limbo from the older editions that james has already alluded to is wild magic there's so much wild magic because it's pure chaos yes and this is where a lot of fun can happen as i've said many times i like tables and anytime i can give a chance to roll dice, I will always, okay, roll some dice. Yeah, and so originally it only happened with arcane casters, so your divine casters were immune to this effect. In second edition, I actually like the second edition mechanic better than the third edition mechanic. It's a little bit simpler, which seems really odd because it's second edition and there was (laughs) nothing simple about second edition except for this. So... Wizards had to make a d20 roll versus their intelligence score. You have to roll your intelligence score or lower to succeed. If you succeed, you cast your spell normally. If you fail, the spell fizzles and you lose it. If you roll a 20, you get a wild surge. Yeah, see, I like that. And I really think that second edition was probably the most polished of the editions as far as They covered the most stuff. They had the most things out there. But again, the difficulty of second edition was a lot harder and your characters would die. They kind of drew that back in third edition and they've drawn that way, way back in fifth. Again, fifth is definitely more accessible. It is more about storytelling than game mechanics, but... It's a different focus for the type of game that you're wanting to play. Second edition was a very gritty, crunchy game. Absolutely. It was intended to be, you know, these slightly above average Joes going on adventures. And the world is a dangerous place, especially when there's big mean monsters that would like nothing more than to eat you. Oh, what giant teeth you have. But fifth edition is a very high powered high fantasy sort of game focusing on big showy flashy magic and big fancy attacks and all of this you know high power right i was gonna say fifth edition is very much a superhero adventure 
Yeah, it's superheroes with magic. It's basically what it is. It's medieval superheroes with magic. (laughs) That is a pretty succinct analysis, if I do say so myself, of 5th edition. And so it has a completely different feel because that's what was intended. It wasn't intended to be that gritty, crunchy game that 2nd edition was. But by comparison, it takes you much longer to create a full character in 5th edition than it does in 2nd edition. Granted. Basically, you just roll your attributes on the table, and then you pick a class based on your attributes that you are allowed to take. Or you Um, do a point by. Or you do a point by. And then once you have that, congratulations. You have your race, you have your class, you have your stats. Go play. Yeah, and as we've mentioned many times, 5th edition is a lot more accessible, which is a wonderful thing to see. I can't complain that more people are interested in playing the game. No, absolutely not. I will totally put an onion on my belt. And like I said, I love the tables. I love the mechanics of 2nd edition, but it was a different game for a different time. 2nd edition is about as old as I am. And so if you want to look up when that came out, you'll have a rough idea of my age. But it was definitely a different game for a different time. And now I will hop off my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) So in third edition, the way that this wild magic surge would work, you roll a d20 plus your caster level, and you have to beat a DC of 15 plus the spell level of the spell you're trying to cast because third edition had everything on a sliding scale increasing and decreasing the difficulty based on the level of the spell being cast and third edition had a lot more in the way of resistances as well i i don't they had the spell resistance mechanic and things like well, that that could you had that in second edition too yes you did but it's totally absent yes they have completely done away with that And magic resistance is now you get advantage on saving throws against magic, which I don't really like because that means that anything that's a roll to hit, you just don't have anything extra against that. So, yeah, I have advantage to save against your fireball. I can't do anything against that firebolt. Yeah, granted. So I don't like that mechanic. I think that is one instance where they grossly oversimplified the mechanic. But now I'm going to step off of my soapbox or otherwise (laughs) we're going to be on this topic all night and we won't get any talk about Limbo done. Well, I mean, it is a chaotic. (laughs) Yes, it is. So I found that I actually happened to have a copy of the second edition Tome of Magic on my shelf. And so I was able to pull out the old second edition Wild Surge table. And my God... Is it a thing of beauty? Oh yeah, absolutely. There are just some absolutely great things on it. Let's just get some random suggestions here. Random effects. 32, the caster becomes invisible. Okay. Why are you not rolling your dice for this? Because I don't have my dice on me. Let me just open up my dice roller on my phone and we (laughs) we will do this. Okay, D100 roll. 46. Ah, This is actually the one I was about to read off anyway. All normal doors, secret doors, portcullises, etc., including those locked or barred within 60 feet of the caster swing open. Call the locksmith. Oh, wait. Wrong movie reference. 97. Target sprouts new useless appendage, wings, arm, ear, etc., which remains until Dispel Magic is cast. This still, I'm keeping the Call the Locksmith reference. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do one more. 51. Sudden change in the weather. Temperature rise, snow, rain, etc. Lasting 1d6 turns. Okay. So a lot of these are actually very RP results, which I really liked and I wasn't expecting from 
a second edition source. So I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody I've already started on adapting the second edition Wild Surge table, adapting some of the things that need some mechanical shifting, like number 45 that refers to Thaco, just shifting them a little bit to fit within the mechanical structure of fifth edition. So our write-up on the Monday after this episode is going to be a revised version of this table. Okay, that'll be a lot of fun. And I think looking at things like this table here, you can definitely see a lot of the influence that second edition had on particularly the original Fallout games, just with some of the zaniness that's involved and even some of the RP. And again, the Fallout series is a great series and definitely was based off a tabletop game. And if you ever get a chance to play the original two, you can get a big feel for how these work. A lot of these things kind of tie in, even with some of the art that you'll see in the game and things like that. Again, it's kind of fun where you can see and note a direct link with influence. It's kind of fun. All right. And then one last thing I wanted to touch on before we got into what you're going to find in Limbo is the movement. I have talked a couple of times about the subjective gravity of Limbo, how you fall through space the way that you fall through the air in the plane of air. And I need to take a moment to really drive home the fact that Limbo is filled with pockets of the different elements. So as in the elemental planes elements. And so you're going to end up having a pocket of water and a pocket of fire and a pocket of earth and a pocket of air. And they're going to be different sizes and different shapes. And they're going to fit together like one giant Jenga tower. And they're constantly shifting and changing into one another. And you're going to have potentially all of the different para-elemental effects on the borders between all of these, which would be really interesting. But while you could just move normally through air and fire-dominant pockets of limbo, fire would be a little bit difficult because it's fire. But in addition to that, you can swim through the pockets of water the way that you would swim through the water in the plane of water. And you can innately burrow through earth so imagine if you would back to the episode where we're talking about the plane of air where if you're falling and you hit a rock you go splat well in limbo if you see that rock coming you can just decide that you're going to burrow through it and you just burrow through it instead of splatting against it which is a nice little cushion to have so yeah that's something that you can do now, I have seen one variant rule for movement in Limbo, and this I'm almost certain was a homebrew thing because I was looking to see where it came from, and I have not found anything official. But the concept behind it was decent, that your movement speed would become three times either your will or your intelligence score. So if you had an intelligence of 10, then you'd have a movement speed of 30, and that would be like your normal movement speed. And as far as a homebrew rule, if you don't want to deal with the subjective gravity or something like that, this is a fairly fair and reasonable way to kind of edge around that. Again, you could either use intelligence or will three times that score, and that would give your movement speed because that's going to vary wildly depending on your character's stats. So they're still going to have to kind of RP and think and play around that a little bit. But it's going to be a little bit more like if you had a newer party at the table, you know, people that hadn't played forever, 
and for some reason you were cool enough to throw them in limbo at their first sit at the table session, they could kind of figure it out a little easier this way. I would not recommend doing that just to go on the record. I would not recommend it either. Stranger things have happened. Sometimes, you know, people bring their friend that want to sit down. This might be the time where you make the newbie go ahead and let them be the monsters. Just let them roll all the attack dice, which is a great thing to do for new players. Absolutely. But I can definitely see that and that would make limbo act less like the plane of air and more like the astral plane where you think to move yes you say in your head i want to go that way and then you just think yourself that way and you go personally i would argue hard negotiation that you use wisdom for this yeah absolutely i think i think that is by far the better stat Again, the intel role for the sphere of influence and stuff that 5e threw up, and it might be in 4 as well. I feel this terribly misplaced, but again, we're going to beat this horse to death on that on that one. Yes. Yeah, we're going to say that 3rd edition got it right, that it's supposed to be a wisdom, and we're just going to move on. Fix it, wizards. Fix it now. All right. So whenever we talk about Limbo, there are basically two groups of creatures that you're going to find within Limbo. One is the Githzerai. And the other are the Slotty. We talked about the Githyanki whenever we talked about the Astral Plane. The Githzerai are the other half of that Gith race. According to lore, there was a Gith named Xerthamon who rose up and said that Gith, with a capital G, was evil and didn't want to follow her plans for the race. And so that's where the schism within the Gith occurred. A civil war broke out. Xerthamon was slain and his followers, the Githzerai, fled into limbo to get away from the Githyanki. So this kind of has the feel, uh, again, going back to Blizzard's games, if you've played StarCraft, it kind of has not quite the same feel, but close to the split between the uh, Protoss and the Dark Protoss. So you have your Dem- Templar and Dark Templar, where they kind of had their whole split. It's kind of that you have a dysphoria almost. Um, so the one thing about the Githzerai is that, like all Gith, they are all psionic, and they are able to to harness their psionics and discipline themselves to the point where they are actually able to draw sufficiently large spheres of influence to actually have cities within Limbo that just sort of float along. Which, when you think about the amount of mental effort that requires, that's damned impressive. Yeah, and there are specific individuals amongst the Githzerai called Anarchs who are the individuals that show this especially good control over the chaos of Limbo and are able to control much larger areas than normal and are able to basically be fed psychic energy to expand their sphere of influence. And it's these Anarchs that control the sphere of influence around the monasteries and around the cities that the Githzerai inhabit within Limbo. In 3rd edition, there was actually a monk prestige class called the Xerth Cenobite, C-E-N-O-B-I-T-E. And these were the monks that were trained on how to control the chaos flow of Limbo and could actually control time as a result. It was kind of an interesting concept because there were instances where you could basically blink yourself ahead 10 rounds in combat. So you basically just disappear for 10 rounds and then you pop back out. There were a couple prestige classes in third edition where you could mess with the flow of time. The Druids had one, I forget what it was, that could become 
extremely overpowered real fast. I mean, and again, that was one thing with third edition was min-maxing was definitely a thing. And so you had to figure out how to flex the rules to your advantage as best you can. And it was a lot easier to break the game with some of the abilities in third. And with this particular prestige class, it was not a GIF exclusive prestige class. Anyone who had psionics and I think nine ranks in concentration could pick up the prestige class. One of my personal favorite abilities on that one is that you could literally punch someone into the future. <laughs> That's awesome. Instead of punching them into next week, you'd literally punch them into you, next week. Well, not quite that far, but you can hit them. And if they fail their save, they disappear for 10 rounds. That said, the great bard Clive Barker has more than enough taught me that you really don't trust anything with the name Cinnabite. <laughs> Just, I mean, might want to pick the better name. <laughs> uh, and then these monks filled the social role within the Githzerai that would normally be filled by a priest because the Githzerai are not religious. They don't have any gods that they worship. They revere Zerthamon as being their primogenitor. And they also revere another individual by the name of Menyar Ag. Menyar Ag is the single most powerful of the Githzerai when it comes to terms of psionics. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him as we get further down because there's another aspect of the Githzerai that he is directly affiliated with. But the Githzerai, being Gith, were once a slave race to the Illithid. And like the Gith Yankee, they take a whole lot of umbrage about it, and rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, you can't fault them for that at all. <laughs> no, not at all. But unlike the Gith Yankee, the Gith Zarai actively hunt Illithid. Every so often, a group of Gith Zarai will get together and form a hunting party called a Rachma. It's usually somewhere between five and seven individuals within the group. Most of them are going to be Zerth monks, but they typically also contain at least one sorcerer, and according to third edition, maybe also a rogue. That really sounds like the making of like a kind of awesome garage metal band. Kinda. <laughs> And once they leave on their hunt, they will not return to their monastery until they slay at least as many Illithids as they have members in the Rachma. Everybody gets at least one. Yes, at least one kill for everybody. So they do go out in hunting parties and actually hunt the Illithids. Unlike the Githyanki, who they'll kill Illithids if they come across them, but they don't actually actively search them out right and again these make a great encounter i mean it could be a one-time encounter it could be if you need an npc hook or a story art one of these things to kind of come in if you have a big bad evil illithid in your thing you could come across this rachma if your party needs help or maybe now it becomes a competition that you know you have to get to this illithid your party has to prove that you killed it and then they're kind of in the way there's a lot of different things you could work with this but this definitely gives some mechanics or some back and forth gives you a good chance for some fun storytelling, perhaps. Yeah, I can definitely see this being one of those things where if your party is running around in the Underdark and they are going into the Underdark without the proper preparation for the Underdark, I can definitely see them getting into a fight with some Illithid. And if it starts going poorly, you can use a Rachma to deus ex them. Yes, so basically the Rachma shows up 
and kills the illithids and saves them. And then they get this big scolding from the Geth on what are you doing here? Completely unprepared for what you're doing down here. Yeah, absolutely. They get the dad talk. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah, the, the the other week we had the dad talk from the Cardinals, and now we're going to have the dad talk from the Gifts of Rye. Uh, are you taking lessons down for when it's time? <laughs> I haven't had to have that talk yet, mainly because she's three and that talk would go completely over her head at this point. But anyway, so going back to talking about some of the settlements within Limbo for the Gith, there's one city and one monastery mentioned within the books that I could find. The city, it's the largest of the Githzerai cities, and it's called, let me see if I can get this right, because this is from the 80s whenever they had all of the unnecessary apostrophes and everything. Um, <laughs> Shraktlor, S-H-R-A apostrophe K-T apostrophe L-O-R. Yeah, close enough. Close enough. This is where Minyar Ag, the great Githzerai, governs for lack of a better term. This is where his audience chamber is. This is where he operates from. It does have a rather large market that has some interplanar trade going on because there are teleportation circles on the perimeter of the city outside of the defenses so that all of the visitors can be vetted before they're allowed into the city. And it's this big, crowded, cramped city with these massive granite walls and solid iron gatehouses. And this is the largest city of the Githzerai within Limbo. This is where the bulk of the non-militant Gith live. Although that is a bit of a misnomer because all of the Gith... Are at least a little bit militant. <laughs> are at least a little bit militant, yes. It's part of their culture. They believe that Xerthamon, their primogenitor, will be returning one day. This great returning savior, sort of a rapture kind of deal. And they view it as their duty to be capable of taking the fight where it needed to be taken so that when Xerthamon returned, they could join him in his crusade, in his fight. So that is what they do. <laughs> that is how the gift do. That is how the gift do. And also just because of the pure chaos of limbo, that martial training also is a psionic training that helps them better control the chaos around them to ensure that they have at least some control at all times. And they all train in a certain amount of martial arts, so they are all still deadly fighters, even if they don't have a weapon at hand. Right, because, you know, again, if you get disarmed while you're floating through space... <laughs> yeah, your, your weapon may be gone forever, because it could get picked up in a random chaos surge, and by the time you can turn around and go back to it, it is now a fish. That you cut down the mightiest tree in the forest with... A herring. A herring. <laughs> <laughs> and so the other location that is mentioned in the books is the monastery of Zerth Adlun. And this is just one of several monasteries. They do mention that there are multiple monasteries, but this is the only one that they mention by name. So anyone with basic psionic ability and the willingness and discipline to learn can train here. The sensei that runs this monastery will let anybody, regardless of race, train here. And one of the cool things is it's a quarter mile diameter sphere with all of these spires and towers just sort of porcupine quilling off of it. And the inside of it is all of these staircases 
that lead from floors to walls or floors to ceilings. Think the staircase scene from the end of Labyrinth. Okay. And you just have to use your subjective gravity to orient yourself to where whenever you step off the stairs, whatever you step onto is down and the floor. That would be absolutely dizzying. Yes, that's part of the training. That's getting that mental mindset to control the chaos. You need to be able to view everything the way that you need to view it at the time when you need to view it that way. And the last note on the monasteries is that anybody is welcome there and they have a hospitality wing where anybody who shows up, they put them up and you get a week of stay before they kick you out. That's nice. So it gives you time to kind of catch a breath and get some rest. And Yeah. And if it's something where, you know, you have to go and do something specific within the plane of chaos, it gives you a place where you can stop and rest and get your bearings such as they are and figure out what exactly you need to do because, and this is a point that I missed earlier, the minus two penalty to all of your mental stuff for being non-chaotic that goes away. If you are in a monastery, that is nice. So this literally gives you a place where you can collect your thoughts because you don't have the constant cacophony of chaos pounding in your head. Understandable. Now, here's the last thing that I wanted to talk about with regards to Minyar Ag. There's these things called adamantine citadels. An awesome name. Just a flat awesome name. Yeah. They're just super cool in general. So whenever the Githzerai are going to leave Limbo, if they're going to be going in a largish group, so basically anything larger than a Rachma, they will construct a citadel out of adamantine because they can control chaos and they can do that. And within this citadel, they'll have this pocket of pure chaos energy from Limbo just sort of as a battery. And once it's constructed, Menyar Ag teleports it to another plane. Oh, wow. Wherever they need to go. And there's always an Anarch on this citadel to you know make it cohesive and keep it stable and to use the chaos energy how it needs to be used in order to maintain it and the first thing that they do once they drop it somewhere is they make a teleportation circle within the citadel so that way they can bounce back and forth between limbo and the citadel as they need to now, these citadels are used primarily basically like listening posts. They're used to monitor activities of the enemies of the Githzerai. So something like a colony of Illithid or a secret compound where the Githyanki are spawning and raising their children or a red dragon's lair if the red dragon is affiliated with the Githyanki or something along those lines. They will use this as a place to monitor their enemies or as a beachhead to launch an attack on their enemies if they need to. So they're just little outwatch posts. Yes, pretty much. And they take care to drop these things in remote areas because due to the chaos energy within the Citadel and the chaos energy being unliving, you can't make living creatures from this energy. It creates an aura around it. Depending on the size of the Citadel, it can range from several hundred feet to several miles Oh, wow. All creatures that can flee from it will. Birds won't fly over it. The plants in the area wither and die. And intelligent creatures, while they're able to move normally through it, they get this feeling of dread whenever they enter the area. 
So again, that starts sounding a bit like Shadowfell a bit more. Yes. And so they will operate out of this. And whenever they get done, everybody teleports back to Limbo. The Anarch is the last one to leave. And when the Anarch leaves, all of the materials of the Citadel just magically dissipate and return to the chaos of Limbo. Because that's what's going to happen. (laughs) Yes, because the Anarch was the anchor that was holding it wherever it happened to be. And so the landscape remains scarred for however long it takes it to recover. So there's the evidence that it was there, but the Citadel itself gets returned to Limbo. All right. I think that's about everything for the GIF. And so the other creature that you're going to find in Limbo are the Sladi. Singular Slod multiple Slotty. They are frog-like aberrant humanoids that spawn from this object that floats around in Limbo called the Spawning Stone. So if you've been with us long enough, you might realize that Ian really, really likes his amphibious creatures. (laughs) Uh, Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm not as big a fan of the Slot as, say, Matt Colville is. Matt Colville really likes the slot from everything that I've gleaned from his YouTube channel. (laughs) So the spawning stone was originally created by Primus from Mechanus. Oh, wow. And it was created as a beacon to tame the chaos of limbo. That is a gargantuan effort. I mean, good try a for effort on that one. And apparently it worked for a good long while, but eventually the stone absorbed enough chaotic energy that it started to spawn creatures and the creatures that it spawned were the slotty. And eventually they reached a certain critical mass and they found all of the little enclaves of Modrons that were out here in chaos land and because the Modrons were creatures of pure law and they were creatures of pure chaos, the Slotty just sort of slotty died all over them <laughs> <laughs> and killed all the Modrons. And that was that. Again, that march just has to be just this glittering path of destruction. I love it. <laughs> I mean, because we talked about with the Rogue March, whenever Orcus went into the energy pool and became tenebrous and the aftermath of that when the two Sunkundai went out to do their proving of who was going to become the next primus one of them the one that was not corrupted went to limbo and just spent the whole week killing slotty that's all they did i mean really it's it's a way to do it yeah so in third edition the spawning stone was guarded by a death slot called the guardian of the stone. And the only thing that's put on here is that it had 45 hit dice. That is the thing. It wasn't a death slot. It was the death slot. Yes. And there were two slot lords that are mentioned in another one of these footnotes. I'm pretty sure it's in manual of the planes called Sendam and Yigorl. Y-G-O-R-L. Igoral. That sounds like a good frog person name. They were portrayed as being representative of the, quote, true Slotty. And they were immensely powerful Slod who actually put limiters onto the spawning stone. Because originally, it being a thing of chaos, there was no rhyme or reason to what the Slod were coming out with. And they, being the most powerful Slod in creation at the time, didn't really fancy any competition. And they didn't fancy 
eventually having the spawning stone spawn something more powerful than them. So they put these limiter runes onto the stone that limited what the potential outcomes for the spawning stone could be. And that's how you got your five types of slot. Actually, three types because one of them kind of metamorphoses a couple of times. But whenever you're talking about slot, you got five different types. The basic ones are red and blue. Red slot and blue slot don't like each other. So it's like an old Halo video? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the difference is red slot procreate by injecting eggs into humanoids. It used to be it takes three months for the egg to hatch and mature, and then it comes burrowing out of your chest like a chestburster alien. And then the blues had a disease that they could impart with their claw attacks called Chaos Phage, which acted kind of like lycanthropy, which, if left untreated after a certain period of time, would transform the person who had it into a slot. Now, is this from 2nd edition? Um, The ability is from 2nd edition. I couldn't find it called the Chaos Phage in 2nd edition. Chaos Phage is a name that I have pulled from 3rd edition. Okay, because, you know, when I was doing my research, I was actually on Dumpstat Adventures, and they generally are great about listing where they get their information from, their books and whatnot, and they're generally a really good source. And they were talking about, they actually have, for Dumpstat, there is a rotation that you've got the various other colors, and it's a constant king of the hill, but again, it tends to go in a regular cycle, which, again, having mechanists trying to give some order to the plane of chaos would make sense that, and again, also our Primus being from Mechanist, everything kind of has that clockwork ordered cycle to it. I don't know if you've seen that or not. I, I didn't. So this is basically, it goes by seasons that it starts with the reds. They're later driven out by the blues. The blues are driven out after by the greens. And then the grays drive out the greens. And then just by a sheer number, the reds eventually overwhelm the gray and take back over the spawning pool. But it tends to go in this cyclical ordered pattern which again tying in with the lore of primus seems to be a good fit i'm not sure where they're getting that from because that doesn't really fit what's in the books gotcha so again that's one where it's in here the author is normally really good about mentioning sources and that hadn't been yeah but one thing that i did want to point out is that in terms of the red and blue slod Red slod, the eggs that they implant hatch blue slod tadpoles. And the victims of the chaos phage from blue slod become red slod. Nice. So it's a constant generational warfare. It is the constant boomers versus millennials. Yes. (laughs) Now, whenever it comes to green slod, green slod can occur from either a blue slod or a red slod. The criterion changes from edition to edition, but the general consensus is if the victim is a relatively high-level humanoid spellcaster, meaning that they're able to cast at least third-level spells, then the slod resulting from this infection will become a green slod instead of a blue or a red. Okay. And the greens are more powerful than the blues and reds, and the greens can shapeshift. Usually they take the form of their original host. That is their primary form, but they can do other shapeshifting. Okay. In second and third edition, the greens were also able to open a gate and summon additional slot. 
Because why not? Because that was a thing in third edition was the powerful outsiders could summon more outsiders. Right. And I believe you have something when you did your Fey write up, I believe you kind of made a, a yes, similar thing. So again, if you haven't had a chance, definitely check out the Fey write ups because Ian went through and we tried to transport some of the third edition rules into fifth edition. And those actually wound up being a fairly solid. I, I really like how those write ups came out. Well, thank you. And another thing that really made the green stand out as being especially powerful, at least in second edition, is that you had to have at least a plus one weapon to even hit a green slot. You couldn't attack them with just basic weapons. You had to have a magical weapon that was at least a plus one in order to even hit a green slot. Right. Now, back in third edition, you could have a plus one weapon, and it was just a mastercraft weapon it wasn't necessarily magical it was just extremely well made that is something again fifth edition kind of they they blended the two things yes so i i did misspeak there yes it didn't have to be magical masterwork weapons and armor don't really exist in fifth edition they should now again in the older editions you had to have at least a plus one weapon to put an enchant on it to make it a magical weapon yes so and again that's how those kind of got blended in fifth edition absolutely so the way that the life cycle works is reds are always reds blues are always blues Greens, once they got old enough, typically it was roughly a century old, maybe a little older. The exact details of this vary from edition to edition. In second edition, they disappear out into the wastes. And a year later, some of them would come back. And if they come back, they're gray. So there's some ritual that they undergo while they're out there that transforms them from greens to grays. And then if they beat Saruman, they come back white. (laughs) Oh, wait, no, wrong story. Damn. Wrong story. In second and third edition, they are notable because Gray Slod can create magic items. And they do create magic items. They enchant their own magic items because that's how they accrue power, by creating their own magic items. I like it. And then once they have accrued enough power and are able to achieve a certain ritual, they end up becoming Death Slod. The ritual taps into the power of the plane of negative energy, and the Death Slod are perceived as being evil's corruption of chaos so it becomes chaos purely for destruction as opposed to pure chaos that can either create or destroy so you you slip from chaotic neutral to chaotic evil basically yes absolutely that is how it works in second edition the death slot were super powerful they had a 70 percent resistance to magic so anytime you threw a spell at them it was a 70% chance that they were going to just flat out say, nope. (laughs) They were immune to damage from all weapons that were not at least plus two. So where greens and grays had that plus one, death slot have a plus two. You have to have at least a plus two weapon to hit a death slot. So at this point, you'd probably need an adventuring character party level, probably six to 10, 6 to 12, depending on when your DM wanted and start giving you some of your higher level gear. Just to even touch, not to beat, not to kill, just to be able to damage, you would need a party at that level for that kind of gear generally. Uh, I don't think so, because the numbers are 
different for second edition as opposed to fifth edition. Fifth they edition is much more liberal with your magic items and your that bonuses. They are. Sorry, you think it'd be a higher level party? Oh, yes. I'm thinking that this is, you're talking like level 15 plus to take on a death slot. Oh, like I said, well, I'm, I was just thinking of at what level your party would actually have the chance of finding contact with a plus two weapon. Yeah. And again, not even to kill the slot, but having access to a plus two weapon. Cause because again, I, plus five is the max. You'd probably get a plus five around level 19 or 20. So plus two, like I said, I'd see probably around eight to 12, eight to 10. Maybe. Uh, but, but again, that'd be a DM flavor choice, but it still kind of gives you an idea of what was there. But I was telling James a little bit before we got started, the slotty have been substantially nerfed as they progress through the editions to put up a comparison between the death slot and the marut being the most powerful of the slot and the most powerful of the inevitables in second edition planescape they didn't have challenge ratings they instead had the xp value what xp you got for beating this creature the xp value for a marut was seventeen thousand. the xp value for a death slot was twenty two thousand. so by that count, a death slot was a, a more dangerous foe than a Marut because you got more experience for it. Part of that being dangerous was the fact that they had two claw attacks and a bite attack. Their bite attack dealt 2d10 damage and each of their claw attacks dealt 3d6 damage. But whenever you got hit with a claw attack, you had to make a constitution save. And if you failed that save, you became stunned for 1d6 rounds. That's incredible. So add that on top of their 70% magic resistance, and you have to have a, at least a plus two weapon in order to hit them. That's what made them so super dangerous. Right. These things were incredibly beefy. Yes. So going from that in second edition to third edition. In third edition, the Death Slot still kept the stun but it could only do it three times a day. So it wasn't on every single one of its claw attacks. So with third edition, they brought in challenge rating. That was the first edition where they had challenge rating. And while challenge rating is not perfect, we have gone on and on about that. Challenge rating does provide a basic framework for an understanding of how powerful a monster is. It's more about like guidelines, really. It is. <laughs> in third edition, the Marut was a CR 15 and the Death Slot was a CR 13. Aww. So it was inverted a little bit. Coming forward into 5th edition, the Marut got a complete overhaul and is now a CR 25 monster. But with something like the name of the Inevitable, it's got to be pretty beefy. I mean, I can lore-wise, I can see that. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. The Death Slot is now a CR 10. But again, they've changed the Death Slot from, again, it was the Death Slot to a Death Slot. So no, there there were multiple death slots. I thought there was only one death slot. No, no, no. Oh, they, were, okay. they were rare in second gotcha. and third edition, but there were multiples. I guess they weren't as shiny and pretty. You know, I mean, even wizards love their pretty monsters. But the one that I was telling you about, the one called the Guardian of the Stone, that is a specific death slot. It is not the only death slot. Gotcha. That's what I've misunderstood then. But that is definitely something they have been pruned down to the point where they're not really that dangerous anymore. And now they're just a regular mid-level fight. Yeah, and, and I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Yeah, I, I can see the disappointment. So the last two things that I wanted to talk about with the Slotty. The first is that they have perfect control over the chaos in Limbo. They still control it the same way that 
visitors to the plane do. As in, you know, they concentrate on something and they change it and do whatever. But they're born of it. They are born of it. And their control is perfect, even when they're unconscious. So you can knock out a slod and it falls through a pocket of fire. And it looks like it's fallen through and being burned up. But really, there's this little pocket of air around it. And it's just falling harmlessly through the fire. Yeah, I'm okay with that. And again, because they are born of the chaos. So of course... I mean, if you're native to chaos, and that's you've got some natural affinity to it. And the other thing that I wanted to touch on with the Slotty is that they have the potential to have control gems in their brains. Another creature can extract this control gem, and if they have it, they get complete control over the slot. There are several different ways that are laid out in the books, uh, I think primarily in third edition, for how you can actually get a hold of one of these gems. You can cast imprisonment on the slot, and rather than banishing them to whatever dungeon in the extra planar pocket that you come up with, rather than sending them off to that, you can instead extract the gem from their brain and have it appear in your hand. That's not a bad little tool to have. Which I think imprisonment is like an eighth or a ninth level spell, so it's pretty stout. It doesn't work so well with the slot anymore. Because by the time you're able to cast the spell, the slot are no longer really all that. Right. Yeah. So while having a slot is always useful, having it earlier would more yes. so. Yes. Agreed. You can also extract the gem with a properly worded wish. Or a sharp knife. That's the next one. <laughs> so if you can incapacitate a slot, you can, over the course of a minute, attempt to surgically extract the control gem. It requires a DC 20 medicine check. And if you fail the check, you deal 4d10 psychic damage to the slot. Okay. And I guess then you get to roll again. Supposedly, unless it's already dead. <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't kill it with... You know, this 4d10 psychic damage, which if it's incapacitated, unless it's something like a hold monster spell or something along those lines, the only other way to incapacitate it is to knock it out. Right. And so if it's unconscious... It's already down to zero, yeah. It's already down to zero. If you deal this psychic damage to it, it's going to count as a critical hit, two failed death saves. Yeah, that's going to be a, a tricky surgery. Yeah. But a sleep spell, however, would probably work. I don't know, because taking damage when you're asleep usually wakes you up. You up. Uh, I don't know. As a DM, I would roll that at work like anesthesia. Okay. But again, that would be a DM call. Yeah, and that would also be, if you fail this check, they wake up while yeah. you're poking around in their gray matter. Yeah, they're not going to And they happy. ain't going to be happy about it. <laughs> and if you destroy their control gem, the slot can no longer be controlled. So this gives you a way to combat someone who has taken control of a slot's control gem. If you don't want to fight the slot, you can destroy the gem, and then the slot is no longer under their control. So, yeah, I could see kind of like you know, a wizard or somebody in anywhere really having a small little army of slot and they've got instead of like a repository of phylacteries, they've just got a repository of control gems and you'd have to like break into their strong house and just start smashing stuff up. Yeah, and I could definitely see this as being something where you're in a fight that you're not expected to win in a toe-to-toe fight. Let's say you have a party of seventh level characters and the enemy that you're fighting has a death slot under his control the way that you beat it is you get that control gem from the caster you break the gem 
The death slot is no longer under control. The death slot is upset about having been controlled and turns on its controller. I could see that. Another good thing would be actually having the slot as almost a layer effect and having the slot come out as minions. And again, just having to go through and smash through a bunch of control gems or just kill a bunch of slot minions. But I could see Slotty working like that. That would actually make a fairly interesting layer effect for like a really big bad evil guy. I don't see Slot as being weak enough to really make good minions. Okay. That's just a personal preference. Okay. I view them as being fairly powerful, extra planar creatures. And as such, don't really make very good minions. Okay. When I see minions, I think of things like common humanoids, skeletons, zombies, beasts of different types, those sorts of things. For the same reason, I wouldn't make Gardinals minions or most Modrons. I could see Monodrones and maybe Duodrones being considered minions, but the more powerful Modrons, I wouldn't consider them minions either. Okay, that, that is a fair analysis. I can take that. And one final little detail before we get on to what other critters you're going to find in Limbo. This is another thing from second edition that is lost in later editions. Each slod had a tattoo on his or her forehead. Actually, I should say their forehead because they're hermaphroditic. Each slod has a tattoo on their forehead. The tattoos signify their exploits. So the more things they do... The more tattoos they get, the more complex their tattoo becomes. And green slod have much larger foreheads than red or blue because they're more powerful and therefore they're more capable of performing more exemplary actions. So they end up getting bigger and more complex tattoos. They need more space. That said, talking about the tattoos for exploits, this is probably terrible of me, but the first thing that comes to mind is Mike Tyson with his big facial tattoos that he has now. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, I suppose. Except that his is on his cheek and around his orbital instead of, you know, on... Directly on his forehead, yeah. Well, I mean, he needed some more space. It's more like a Charles Manson. Yeah. Well, I mean, mean, if you needed more space, I mean, he was champion for a while. I mean, hey, I, I beat this dude, I beat this dude. I did this, I raised some pigeons. All right, so that pretty much covers... The two major groups that you're going to find in Limbo, the Githzerai and the Slotty. Some of the other things that you can find in Limbo, according to some of the older editions, something called the Dark Weaver. It's native to Pandemonium, but also appears in Limbo. It's basically a giant evil chaos spider. I like it. Chaotic evil spider. Check. The Vor, which are also normally native to Pandemonium, but also appear sometimes in limbo and they're basically giant evil chaos hyenas that have a one-third chance to actually also be spellcasters oh oh my we have the wastrels again those were the evil crows that we talked about in hades something called the costa k-h-a-a-s-t-a which are basically planes walking lizard men kind of awesome you have the chance of finding something called an iron maw which Again, normally native to Pandemonium, also find them in Limbo. Seems like we're getting a fair amount of overlap here. (laughs) Yeah, they're basically evil carnivorous oak trees. I like it. Just a random floating oak tree. Yeah. Okay. And if you get too close to it, the root comes out and snags you and pulls you in and it eats you. Why the hell not? I like it. Effectively, it's an evil treant. Yes, but just floating through the nothing. Just nothing, 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 mode of fire, nothing, nothing. Floating oak tree. (laughs) it's holding on to its own little earth moat. And another thing from the old tables, something called a quill, which is from the second edition Planescape. So not Star-Lord. 
No, not Star-Lord. Okay. Not this time. They are oversized armadillo porcupines. So basically think of a creature that looks like a porcupine, but underneath all of the spines has that armored carapace that an armadillo does. I like it. That kind of reminds me of the actual quill bore that you'll see in Diablo 2. Yes, and they do shoot their spines like the quill bore do. Excellent. And they also basically eat anything that's vegetation, even things that most creatures would normally not be able to eat, like Bloodthorn and Iron Maw. Nice. Yeah. And while they are edible, they're not very tasty. So it's something that if you're starving, you can probably kill one and eat it. You'll probably be picking quills out of yourself (laughs) in the process, but you could kill it and eat it and not die of starvation. Well, that's always a plus. It would just be a horrendously unpleasant experience from beginning to end. Gotcha. Now, talking a little bit about some of my personal suggestions that did not come from any of the encounter tables in the older editions, I would personally see the chance for any elementals because you have pockets of elemental material throughout Limbo. I could definitely see having some air, earth, fire, and water elementals just out here. Yeah, I could see that. I wonder if the elementals themselves would shift, though, like the other elements do. That would be an interesting take on it. I would think that it would operate along the same lines as the elemental chaos does, in that the elementals will go out there. They don't like to be out there. Okay. I would see this as being sort of a, whenever a glob of the elemental stuff gets pulled from one of the elemental planes into limbo. They might get grabbed along with it and sort of as a hitchhiker sucked up into limbo. And then they have to figure out how to get back, which I would think would be probably fairly easy for an elemental, but I'm not certain. Uh, I think that would be a DM call. But because the elementals can exist in the same space as a different element, So, like, you can have fire elementals that are on the plane of Earth. Right. They're not native there, but they can be there. And because elementals are intelligent, they would be able to control the morphic nature of Limbo. So they would be able to at least maintain a certain amount of their element in the area around them. Okay. They would be able to control it. To a certain extent. So I would think that taking that into account now that I'm stream of consciousness going on here, that an elemental that finds itself within Limbo would be able to maintain enough of its element around itself to sustain it. Again, that would make perfect sense. And another thing that I would personally put out here especially if you're going for the edge of reality sort of deal, denizens of the far realms. Oh, absolutely. So things like beholders and aboliths and star spawn. Yes. They would also be here because if you're using this as the edge of reality, rather than as its own unique individual contained plane of existence, then this is the transitional area where the creatures from the far realm get into this universe. Yes. So you would have that in there. Yeah, again, those make perfect sense. Now, there is one more thing, and I wasn't sure if you were going to mention this or not. They are not technically official, but it's been one of those fan homebrew things that's kicked around since third edition, and it's everything I love and hate about the race, and it's perfect. But if we're going to talk about pure chaos, halflings. And there is the town of Barnstable. 
which was basically part of the world tree or a halfling village in the world tree that some halflings were messing around doing their crazy halfling stuff and a surge of wild magic teleported the entire village into limbo. And there's enough halflings and enough of them were able to focus to maintain a sphere of influence around this town or village. But there's a whole freaking halfling settlement just floating around limbo. <laughs> I was not aware of that, but that is hilarious. It is hilarious. And again, unfortunately, it's not official on any text, but I've seen people mention it going back as far as when third edition would be. And it fits halfling so perfectly well because accidental oops with wild magic. They're crazy enough and chaotic enough that they can kind of hold their own in the chaos. And halflings are just freaking everywhere. So why the hell not? Yeah, and the whole fact that, especially in 5th edition, that halfling luck. Yes. You know, they already have that little bit of control over chaos through that. And so I like being able to take that aspect and turn it up to 11 and say that they managed to knock themselves into limbo, but they have enough control over the chaos to be able to keep it stable. Yeah. And so, again, you've got Slod, you've got Gith, you've got Outsiders, and a little Halfling. Boink, 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 boink. <laughs> I think that's just about got it for me. Yeah, that, I... that's what I've got, too. Let's go ahead and end on Halflings. <laughs> Absolutely. So, thank you, everyone, for putting up with our rambling tonight. It was a little bit all over the place, and I apologize for that. I think it thematically it fits. It does fit. That does not necessarily mean that it makes for a pleasant listening experience. But anyway, <laughs> if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please drop us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespearean insult page a day calendar inspired role play prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and then getting cross-posted to our Facebook and Instagram accounts at Undercommon Taste. We also have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash undercommontaste, where we put all of our write-ups. And I am currently working on a guide to the elemental plane of air. Once I get that done, it's going to be going up on one of the for sale sites, probably DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG. But every patron gets access to the PDF copies of every one of our for sale write-ups for free included in their Patreon account. So if you want to help the show financially, we would really appreciate you going on and becoming a patron. You can also find our podcast wherever you find your podcasts, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify. As always, give us a rate and a review. This helps increase our visibility and this way we can bring you more content and direct our content towards what you guys want to hear. So thank you once again for listening to us, and next week we will see you somewhere. Chaos woohoo! Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. 
You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.